This is the UFC St. Louis post-fight special. Welcome, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. You might know me from MMA Fighting, where I'm the senior editor over there. You might know me from SiriusXM, where I'm the host of the Luke Thomas Show. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, if you are, it is uh, 1217 East Coast time. Thank you, Jesus. It was not a six-fight main card. Four-fight main card for UFC St. Louis has now completed. So I'm going to talk about everything that we saw on tonight's event. If you want to watch that, but you don't want spoilers, Bookmark it, like the video, do what you got to do because I'm about to give spoilers in five, four, three, two. Okay. All right. So I'm assuming if you're around, you don't mind spoilers. So I want to say to get this going, please give this video a like and subscribe to the channel below. It's a big uh, favor for me when you do. Uh, this is brought to you by the Beta Academy. If you ever want to train in Washington, D.C., I'll put some information in the description box below. So the corner of 14th and Florida Northwest, that's where I'm a member. Go. It's a great place to train. Okay. Uh, check out the Beta Academy in Washington, D.C. Okay. So UFC St. Louis just ended. A couple of remarks to start. I don't know what the donks in St. Louis, I don't know what's wrong with them in terms of the wooing, but it is at the point now where I'm having to almost mute my television. Uh, it is becoming quickly intolerable. So shouts to St. Louis for being an absolutely terrible crowd and audience. But UFC Fight Night, Stevens versus Joy, UFC Fight Night 124, of course, in the Scott Trade Center. We don't have any figures just yet on attendance or gate. We'll get to those a little bit later, I guess. Jeremy Stevens defeats Duho Choi at 236 of the second round via TKO elbows and punches. So what can we say? I guess let's start from the end and then work backwards, all right? Um, stoppage maybe looked a little early. I don't think you can make uh, uh, a terribly strong argument for it, but it looked a little early. I think the issue was for Keith Peterson was that the big shot dropped Choi, and then the, the like Stevens has good ground and pound, but he has especially good ground and pound. Like if he hurts someone and they drop, and they're still kind of with it, but you can tell they're hurt, so they're in that gray zone. He drops these hammers, like his first one, first one or two shots on the ground are really hard and he hit Choi with a couple of those and then so Choi did that old chemo Ken Shamrock bit where he gets hit and then just shows his back now he didn't give his back up all the way but he turned away and kind of covered up and it was when Peterson dropped in he kind of uh, Choi did pulled his guard down and then tried to face and re-guard against um, Stevens but at that point it was too late so it did look like he had something left in there, but I can understand Keith Peterson's decision-making in stopping it. So not, not a great stoppage, but not the end of the world either. But I don't know that that's the big lesson you take away from something like this. Here was my read. My read was when Choi was really working the distance properly. This was basically his fight to lose. You heard Paul Felder talk about it tonight. To the extent that Choi was you know, uh, working with his jab and then stepping in and out of range and uh, every time... Uh, Stevens would charge even through these stance switches. You know, he was just constantly right in front of it. Like all the punches were just a little bit out. And then he was able, able to really stick them. <laughs> Pardon me. He was able to stick them behind his range. So whenever he was doing that, he was doing really well. Those leg kicks looked good. Stevens was doing a pretty good job of giving them back to him, right? Like if they'll often tell you if you get hit, you know, don't let them get away with that. Let them know that if you do that, you're going to fire one back. He did a lot of that, but I thought Choi was doing a really good job of going to the thigh, 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 and then he was going after the calf, so he was really um, varying that. He, he looked good in that first round, looked good. Some of the uppercuts he was trying were, I think, a little forced, uh, but he was doing some decent body work. He was you know, minding his motion around the cage. He didn't get trapped up against the fence too, too badly. 
Um, uh, but it was the second round. It was a completely different fight. Stevens just put urgency on him. And I think when you, when he's, when Choi is at distance and he's able to make calculated decisions and stick to a game plan, um, he's a, he's a formidable talent and he doesn't take a lot of damage necessarily, but when he resorts to his instincts under panic or pressure, that's when he, you know, he's still dangerous because he's such a big power puncher and he's got some great combinations, but that's when he's vulnerable as well. It's when he stops moving. Um, it's when he just sort of goes on autopilot a little bit and Stevens was able to bring that out of him. Um, uh, landing just incredible punches. Now you saw that it was that one kick uh, to the face. He threw it once. And Stevens sort of got out of the way. And then Stevens walked right back into distance. So Choi threw it again. Boom, stuck him. But then they had this exchange where um, I, I think that the power of Stevens or his aggression or his cage pressure, I, I think it just it, it, it speeds up Choi's decision-making. And when he does, he's more prone to the kind of instinctual. It's not laziness exactly, but it's not the same diligent adherence to a plan. And uh, eventually that right hand set, set him down. He landed the right hand a few times previously, but really he was only missing by a little bit to begin with. Um, the stance wishing, I can't say too much about it from Stevens because I have to really go back and examine it. I don't recall it necessarily tonight being a particularly useful weapon, but that could be wrong. It's hard to get everything from a, a fight like that on first viewing. So I, you know, there's, I don't want to say too much or too little about it. Suffice to say, it was interesting to see him bring that wrinkle, but ultimately I think what he does really well in the end can be enhanced by stand switching, but he's that pressure kind of, you know, fast, explosive striker who when they get you into concealed spaces, um, they're able to land with more, not merely authority, but more accuracy as well. You know, when they're out in space, it's just really hard for those guys to explode. They need some kind of surface to prevent you from going back. And when that happens, they can catch you side to side, which is exactly how he caught Choi. He caught Choi circling on that way, so he just met him with the right. I mean, academic to an extent. Um, the thing for Choi is, man, he went through a buzzsaw in Cub Swanson, and he hung on probably – I mean, this is what – you know, we always talk about, like, you know, I, I'm not saying in this fight the towel should have been thrown, and I'm not saying I didn't find Choi versus Swanson – just un unbelievably exciting. But at some point, if you got a young guy like that, you got to make some choices about their future. And one of the major issues in mixed martial arts is that we valorize taking a beating. You know, uh, Darren Elkins gets valorized because he takes a beating and then wins, but you don't even have to do that. Remember Gilmer Melendez, speaking of Jeremy Stevens, he looked like he kind of had enough after two rounds of that, and his corner kind of like, you know, urged him to go back out there because there's something to be said for, you know, you know, standing up to that kind of challenge. I hear it all the time when I talk to fighters, like, would you be mad if your coach threw the towel? Yes. Why? Because even if I'm losing, I, I want to prove I'm tough. I, I don't want to quit. You know, sometimes quitting is the rational thing to do. And after two rounds of what he took against Cub Swanson, maybe that was enough, or maybe halfway through the third. I don't know. These are all tough calls. Here's what I do know. After going all that distance with Cub and now this with Jeremy, I'm not going to say his chin is gone because I don't think that's true. But, yo, they got to stop matching this guy up with dudes who are battering ram, buzzsaw, MFers, who are also vets, guys who are tough, who are proven durable, who hit hard, who have this weird mix of knowing when to take risk and then when to be a, a savvy veteran. Those guys are bad matchups for him right now, and, and, and he's too young to be getting just – I mean, ridden hard and put away wet, which is exactly what's going down right now. Enough, man, enough. I know he's got some military service coming up, 
Um, but honestly, like they, then if he has another fight or however many fights he has before, then they need to be against somebody commensurate with his skill level, which is a, a very talented guy, but very much developing. Going up against these guys, I mean, Jeremy Stevens said he was going to be in the, the UFC at this point of like almost 11 years, 11 years. You know, it's crazy to have that amount of time. When did he actually make his UFC debut? Uh, and by the way, his wins over, you know, Rafael dos Anjos. He made his UFC debut back against Dean Thomas in May of 2007. Jesus. Jesus. Uh, and then fought, I didn't know how to fight. Yeah, it's English. Yeah, interesting. And then he fought Diego Sarriva and then Cole Miller. Spencer Fisher, Javier Dos Anjos, Joel Zong, Lucent Tebow, Justin Buckle, Sam Stott, Milton Gallard, on and on and on. You get the idea. Um, so, yeah, they got to stop doing that because it's clear that he's not ready for that. And then if you keep doing this, you're going to ruin somebody who has a perfectly bright future, even with. Uh, military service that he owes uh, his country by law. So uh, they got to stop that. Uh, for Choi, just to clarify his age, he is 26. Um, and I know it has been a while since that fight. I thought he took enough time off. You know, since the last one, there was a lot being made of like, well, you know, did he take enough time off? He did. Because you know, that fight was in December of 06, and now we're in January of uh, or 2016. Excuse me. Now we're in. Uh, January of uh, 2018, so it's you know a year and some change, and that's fine. I, I think that's okay. But when you get now to this stage, and you're like, well, uh, okay, so he had time off, but it's pretty clear that there are still some portions of the game in terms of composure under fire, of working through essentially a refinement of skill, so that you're not resorting to this more limited version of yourself. These take time to build against opponents and in training, it's just repetition, 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 repetition. And it just looks to me like he hasn't had enough time to get those uh, proverbial Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. I think that's really where we're at here. And because he's so young, I think he's entitled to a little bit of a slower pace. You know, when he's at his best, he can. you, you saw what he can do. He can crack, man. That left hook, that, that left finishing left hook of his is a thing of beauty. Um, but let's not murder this kid for crying out loud. He's 20, 26. We're going to turn him into hamburger um, by the time he's 30. It, 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 not a, I mean, look, this is what the Japanese were routinely criticized for during the Pride era, not merely for Japanese prospects, but for any of these Olympic, Olympians who could have been somebody special, um, and they just got chucked to the wolves in Pride, and those guys were like, yeah, I've had enough of this, or they got so badly damaged they could never – you know, develop properly. I don't want to get that way with Duho Choi. Let's let's cut this guy a bit of a break. Uh, okay. In your co-main, <clears throat> in your women's flyweight co-main event, Jessica Rose Clark defeats Paige Van Zandt, 30-27, uh, 29-28, 29-28. Twenty what can we say about this one? Um, Okay, a few things. It appeared that Paige Van Zant had broken her arm at some point, I think, in that first round. Uh, they think it was from a spinning back fist. What do you want to say about this performance? My hunch is that you just can't say that, you, you can't declare it's not true that the broken arm didn't impact her, right? I know some people are like, well, um, there's no way to say, how, you know, they just firmly believe what they want to believe about it, and they don't think that the arm impacts it at all. I, I just have a hard time believing that. In any kind of athletic endeavor, if you went to work, if you merely did any kind of routine errand almost, and you had an untreated broken arm, it just sort of naturally, it seems quite reasonable to conclude that would have at least some kind of impact. Now, how much? We can debate. In fact, I, I, the problem with Paige Van Zandt is just 
just to, just to be honest, there's some fight IQ issues going on there, or at a bare minimum, there's just training experience issues. And I'll give you two examples. Number one, I mean, what is up with the with the? Uh, it's, no, hip tosses are fine. You see Haragoshi's off a of wizard um, constantly. You see trips from the body lock, even if it's a 50-50 body lock with guys like Habib, where he's able to pinch the 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 underhook from the other guy to him and then take him in that direction. You've seen that. Those are fine, man. It's fine to have those from the clinch, depending if you do it technically. And you can do, I suppose, a head toss. But as you can see, they're very, very low percentage. And when you're going up a weight class and you got to get your hips under, you got to get them firing. You got to bring them over. You got to crash on top of them. You have to have a good scarf hold once you get there because you don't have the far side underhook when you come over. If you just think about it rationally, if I throw you with a head toss, right, and then we get on the ground, you, I don't have control of, of the inside space on you. I just have your head. That's not nothing if you know how to do it, but it's a very separate skill that not a lot of people in jiu-jitsu are particularly good at. Even you can get some good black belts who aren't necessarily that strong from that position relative to, say, maybe some wrestlers, and in particular relative to, I know some catch wrestlers, but I, I've never really trained with any of those people. But um, judo guys have really, really, really good scarfold. You saw Ronda had a really good scarfold because they train that position way more extensively than people in jiu-jitsu do. So you'd have to have all those as a prerequisite. I don't have control of the far side arm, or rather I don't have the underhook on the far side. And so that that really limits me uh, from what I can do in terms of positional advancement. You can see it, it's, it's perilous. And then just to, and she did it the right way because uh, Clark was moving into her, so use the momentum against her. So if they're going this way, you know, turn them and burn them. That part's right. But, you know, that, I, I mean, I don't know if she's hitting that in practice on people, but if I were her coach, I'd be like, just, we're going to stop doing that because this is not, not good. Um, these are very, very low percentage attacks that are at best almost borderline sacrifice throw in terms of, you know, their level of risk associated with it. And more commonly than not, they don't even come close to working. And then worse, it's, you know, if I throw a punch and then miss and then I pivot out and I don't take any punishment, well, all right, the punch missed. But if I try to throw from a head toss and I do it poorly and like what you often see common is that the arms will pop off the head because they don't have enough of a tighter grip or they tried to flip them and roll them and somehow everything got kind of loose. And in this case, Clark will keep their base. So then they bring their hand around. Now they have control of your hips. It's a fucking nightmare. It's a real it's a it's a nightmare. Um, you just don't do that shit anymore. Like, you, I, I don't know why. You know, I, I for a while there, I thought this was a bit of an unfair thing. People would say about women's MMA. It's really not unfair. Like it's so common enough that uh, it's a problem and it's got to stop. It's just not a real takedown for people at this level. Ronda Rousey, notwithstanding, she could probably do it, and you know some other, I'm sure um, can, but most cannot. Uh, and that goes on the men's side too. That's why you don't see that shit over there. Super low percentage. Here was the other one when she got in the triangle. Uh, it was her left arm that was trapped. Right, so it was this side, uh, and her right arm was free. Now that's going to limit her ground and pound. But there was a couple of times where she was like trying to, you know, tripoding up and then driving weight in is the correct thing to do. And then you have to get the other side arm cross faced against theirs. That's how you can begin to alleviate some of this pressure. Um, and Clark did a lot of the right things. She angled over. So rather than trying to, you can triangle choke someone facing them. It's better to get a bit of a twist, right? Just think about it, like there's a little more, it just tightens the screw. Um, she did that correctly. She was able to readjust her calves a lot uh, in terms of grabbing her own uh, shin and then really, you know, sealing the choke again. She did that. She got the arm to go across. She tried to go for arm bars. Um, Van Zant was getting out of it. So there's a lot of things that Clark was doing to keep her on her toes. 
But at the same time, there was t- like like the one of the initial things that Paige Van Zandt did, Paige Van Zandt did was like she walked into the joke, and so then Clark went whoop, just like you know, and then hooked it there. Um, and that wasn't the end all be all. I'm just pointing out there's just some weird decisions that happen through the course of these. But on the other hand, if your arm is broken, that's going to mentally affect what kind of decisions you make. Um, you know, it's going to limit what you can obviously do with that hand. That that's that's true for wrestling. That's true for punching. That's true for block. I mean, it's true for everything. It's true for just moving around. If you have a broken arm, just to move it is going to be hard. So I just don't I just don't believe it had no impact or you know, negligible one. Now people were saying, I saw some folks saying, well, you know, the one round she won was in that third when she had the broken arm because she lost the first two. And of course, she did have two 29-28s. So she did have one 30-27. I wouldn't have given the third round to her, but okay, um, a couple of judges, it seems like they did. We need to verify that, but it seems like they did. If that's the case, all right. It's not that under adaptation, she has no ability. You know, she's not a bad fighter. Um, exactly. Uh, she has capabilities, and she made a decision to stay on the outside. Clark was was kind of just lumbering around a little bit, um, especially in that third. So she was able to block those, you know, um, switch kicks or, you know, the jumping switch kicks. Uh, but at the same time, they were kind of like having this, you know, uh, almost like a car crash impact. Like there, she was blocking them, but you could see her, you know, just f- like absorbing the, uh, the weight of them a little bit heavily. And so, so there's that, um, I mean, I don't know what to say. Like, it just was not a kind of performance from Van Zant that would inspire a ton of confidence, but she was put in a position where inspiring confidence was, I think, measurably more difficult with that arm. But the only thing that sort of kills me here on this one is that, you know, she went up a weight class um, and, you know, trying trying big man moves up a weight class, just not not wise. Um, she had plenty of energy, so I thought that was good. Footwork on the outside does the feet together lateral thing, which is fine if you're really far away. But if you're trying to get set and, like, engage, you can't be doing that, which, you know, wasn't the biggest problem. I don't know, man. Like, there's not... You know, you can just sit there and nitpick anybody's game who's developmental. And at sort of one point, you say, here's the deal. The deal is that there's clearly some extra seasoning that needs to happen. My sense is that, yes, probably it is very fair to say that the arm was impacted to the point where her performance was really, truly, maybe even in terms of winning and losing, impacted. Um, But at the same time, it also feels to me like there's a level of progress that I'm not feeling that, for example... Sage Northcutt in his last contest, I did see progress there. He really did a very good job in in numerous phases. He's still not great necessarily off of his back, but he had great timing on his takedowns. He executed him towards the end of rounds. He was fast. He was on his feet. He stuck to a game. You just saw a little bit more of it from him that you needed to. Not a perfect performance by any stretch, but you know he just it, it inspired confidence about his development. Um, it's hard to just make a very strong determination here, but I'm not feeling super positive about it. So uh, opinions will vary, and I think some measure of patience with her is still is still owed. But this is not a great look. Um, Jessica Rose Clark, not a big name. You know, losing to Rose Namajunas is one thing. And look, not to belittle Rose Clark, she fought her ass off. She had a, a, an insanely difficult week. You know, my heart absolutely goes out to her for what happened to her apartment and, of course, her pet. Whoever did that is a monster, you know, so it couldn't have been easy to find under those circumstances, but I'm just sort of speaking realistically. This was not somebody who's a bit of a household name uh, or, or, you know, very, very close to the top of that division, you know, or has a, you know, some sort of popular feature about her, like a Michelle Waterson. It's not, it's none of those things. And so 
there, there's some issues there uh, pretty clearly with her. With Jessica Rose Clark, I think my only real comment is, addition, in addition to what I already said, she was stalling on the ground. I mean, that 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 should be mentioned. I did not really enjoy, I think with who was a referee, Mario Yamasaki. I did not enjoy his refing in this contest. It seemed pretty clear to me that when there was, especially, uh, was it the first or second round where she was like uh, hunt, or maybe it was the second round, whatever round it was, where she was hunting the head and arm triangle, but she was on the other side, right? For a head and arm triangle, you can do, um, you can, I mean, you can do them anywhere you can do them, right? But more typically, you have to be on the same side of the body as the choke. So if you're choking over here, you're choking this arm, you got to be over here. Rose Clark was this way, right? And again, if you got like the most nightmare squeeze ever, you could probably get it from there, but it's highly unusual, okay? You got to get all the way over. And she just kind of stood there. Now, you can do a lot of things. You don't necessarily have to, you don't necessarily have to um, move all, all that quickly, but you got to apply pressure. In other words, okay, I don't want to pass. I'm just trying to force my knee through. I have to establish certain conditions to get to where I want to go. I have to maybe press her hips over. I have to get a really, really, really strong cross face and i need to get her to look away with that powerful cross face and shoulder pressure i need that because what might happen is i can then more easily control her hips and then i can uh, you know there's a variety of things you can do from there maybe if i uh you know i pretend to try and play with her wrist as i'm blocking it with my head it'll force her to bring it down to the mat this is a very common reaction in which case boom then i take my head out and now i have your arm away from your body planted on the mat so you don't necessarily have to pass all those times and then you can just lock up a kimura cross body it's this is a common setup common setup somebody you try to scoop their elbow what are they going to do they're going to drive it to the ground you try and scoop their wrist what are they going to do they're going to try and drive it to the ground and then you just go the other way with them trick it boom plant it now you got a kimura cross body so it doesn't require the pass necessarily this is my point there was a while there where she was going for that and then it became pretty clear that there was going to be no effort attempted really no serious one at passing or that she just didn't have you know, wasn't comfortable with her passing um, series from that position. And that's the that's when the referee has to come in and say, fellas, ladies, I mean, we got to do something about this. Let's go. You know, they swallow the whistle, so to speak, in MMA. You get them in – I mean, I, I always bring it up, man. You know, people don't like wrestling in college because they don't like the sport of wrestling. But you, you wouldn't believe the effort that sport makes to, to like – make it action-packed. You might be saying, well, if they're trying to make it that action-packed, then I still don't like it. What does that say? Right? Some people will never be converted. I'm just saying that spirit of taking a sport and trying to force action. I think more sports should take that seriously, including ours. We know we always want to say, oh, we want to make sure we don't get in the way of this delicate setup, like we're splitting fucking atoms here at some point. Man, come on. Like, get on it. If you don't have a really good submission from this space, it's going to show relatively quickly. Uh, and you got to do either do something to create it and to get to establish those conditions, or we got to move this along. And um, and I just thought there was a little bit of stalling going on, but she did enough to get the win. Um, if you're still watching, please give it a thumbs up and like uh, like the video, and then uh, subscribe to my channel. Let's keep this train rolling. In your third from the top, Kamaru Usman defeats Emil Weber Mech, unanimous decision, thirty twenty seven across the board. Hmm. Okay. Emil Weber Mech looks to me very powerful physically. He just went up against a guy who is at a bare minimum just as powerful, probably a little bit more, and has a skill set that is, in terms of his wrestling and the kind of wrestling that he has, that is really, really, really tough to deal with. Like, I really wonder, I mean, his, 
Kumar Usman's style is very labor intensive, right? It requires a lot of labor to make it work. And he makes it work. He got the win tonight. In fact, there was a stat. He has the winningest, like, I think in terms of a welterweight's first seven fights winning them, Kamar Usman's the first welterweight to do that since John Fitch. I mean, we're talking about, like, he's he's beating up on these fellows out here. Um, but uh, it's very labor-intensive. It requires a lot of effort to make it happen. And so it's not just that. He has a particular, like, very folk-style uh, way to wrestle. Um, he, he doesn't have, he has a lot of high crotch lifts. He has a lot of leg rides. He has a lot of, um, he, he likes to work from behind with the waist. And I want to talk about the, the gripping here in just a second. Um, and, and he does a lot of wrist control, you know, really, really, really solid, diligent, always on, I mean, always on with the wrist control and a variety of different ways, whether it's across, whether it's the same side, whether he's passing it, whether he's just, I mean, there's all different, whether he's breaking down a structure, whether he's trying to fight your hands, like he's just really, really good about hand control. And it, you know, if you come from Europe and you didn't start training this until later, it's just going to be hard to deal with the guy who can do that. It's just, it's very, very difficult, but I, you know, he hung in there and he was trying different things at different moments where, whether it was against the fence and he was trying to throw the scoop elbow or on the ground, trying to throw elbows as well. He was really getting out there and, and doing what he could with it. It's just, uh, you know, he's physically hard to match and that skill set is really aided. I mean, if you weren't as built as he was and you didn't train as hard as he did and you didn't have the cardio he did, like if you're just kind of like average in those things, that style wouldn't work at all. Like, in other words, Kumar Usman's style only really works if you're built like that uh, and trained like that. Otherwise, I don't think you can make it work, even with all the, the, the wrestling technicalities that are involved. Some other measure of uh, athletic excellence has to be a component of that. Otherwise, I think it kind of falls apart. Um, so what, what can you say about Kumar Usman on this one? I would say that it was so dominant in many ways. The only problem for me with it, if we're just, again, we're nitpicking here a little bit because he got a great win, is that for this level of his development, now he's not some old veteran. Uh, he's 29, and this was his 13th fight. His one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh fight in the UFC. He's got some good experience. I would like to see a little bit more progress in terms of his ability to rely on the other parts of his game. It's not that he can't strike. I'm not saying that. that. Not saying he doesn't have jujitsu. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying a lot of that um, goes missing when the fight gets strenuous. When you could be like, "Well, that makes sense. Wrestling's his base, right?" What I'm saying is, I'm talking about I'm talking about growing to a point where you no longer consider going hardcore wrestling as a as a beneficial retreat that you would actually say, no, 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 the best way for me to win this fight is to duke it out because I've got all these skills that I've developed. No, 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 the best way for me to win is to control and then pass and you know, really work on my passing, really work on my amount of crucifix, that really work on my elbows from side, right? that, that kind of thing. Like where you, if, you're, if you still believe that retreating to some kind of more wrestling-centric approach is your best way to win, you might be right. It actually, that might really be the case, in fact. That you could go that route and beat up on these guys. He, that, he's that talented. That to me is great, but I think that's probably got some limits at the very top of the division. And the better place to be as you develop is to not have a crutch like that. 
Um, yes, it's very it's very good, but I think at the very top, it's not going to help you all that much. It'll help against very very good guys, but the very best ones. To beat the very best, you have to have to beat the very best ones, right? Like the really truly good ones, you have to be able to have your game to a point where you can't say, "Well, um, you know, I'm just going to wrestle for three rounds, basically." With dominantly, uh, as that's the best way to go because on the feet, I'm still trying to put it all together. No, 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 that that should not be your your refuge should be the feet, so to speak, right? I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you get the idea. So it's just that his game still has this complexion of being a little bit wrestling heavy. Um, not the end of the world, something to work on, but something that needs to be worked on, I think. Um, Emil Walremek, as I mentioned, you know, I didn't think he looked too bad in this one. He was just dealing with a, another buzzsaw in Usman. I and especially the fact that he kept, was he, he, here was the thing with Mech, and this was a point I made on Twitter. We always talk about the next frontier in technical development in MMA. Um, and I had a technique talk out where I asked all these coaches. I asked Daniel Cormier. I asked Jimmy Smith and some other guys. You know, what did you see in 2017 as this source of great uh, uh, innovation in MMA? When you look back on it, like what, did, what were guys doing better this year than they had in years past, whether that's a technique or, or a strategy. And there's a lot of different things that guys said. I encourage you to go read it on MMA Fighting. Here's another one that I'm looking forward to, which we haven't seen, but we need to start considering. I have talked about this very, very much. Um, there's something in collegiate wrestling called the referee's position. There's a lot of ways you end up there. But one of the things is you see that little that, that rectangle on the wrestling mats, and these guys put their knees at one end, and then – they put their hands past, and so they get on like almost all fours. And then the guy behind them will slip one hand around the waist and then one hand behind the elbow. And once he makes contact, then they're wrestling. You separate, you get a point for an escape, right? Okay, they don't allow you to clasp your hands in that position. And the reason why they don't allow you to clasp your hands in that position is if you've never had somebody, first of all, anybody who's not even good can just get behind you and take a gable grip, right? They can take a gable grip. And, and if they know how to use their lats and they know how to suck hip to hip on that thing or even get high and they control you like a marionette, it's very hard to get it off of you, okay? If, you're, if you don't know what you're doing or even if you, you're pretty good at it and you've got somebody behind you like a Kamara Usman who must not only have a very strong grip but knows all the different sequences to transition to hold on to it, right? He just he, It's going to be technically and physically hard to break his hands apart. He is going to have a major, major advantage over you for the duration of even when this breaks and he's able to keep a waist and then grab an elbow, keep a waist and then grab a wrist. It's all that flow. But when they they'll get to these positions where the guys will stand and there's Kamaru Usman or whoever on your back, like Weidman was on on um, Gastelum, and they got a gable grip, they got a C grip, they've got some kind of grip where they're holding on and they guys can't break it. The, the next frontier in evolution are going to be guys like what Jose Aldo do. Do you ever notice how fast Jose Aldo breaks grips? And what does that allow him to do? Okay, you know, everyone's going to say hashtag 13 seconds, but you know what I'm talking about. He can break grips. He leans backward into them, and then he walks out and turns. And that's how it's done. He breaks hands fast. The next frontier in takedown defense against the fence is finding ways around wrist control and then breaking grips. Because this around your waist especially this person wrestled at a high level is a shutdown. It's like an emergency break when you're trying to hit the gas pedal. It's like you're there's, it's so smothering. It's so controlling. It's such a problem. You got to break the hands. You got to break those hands, man. And the, and the next team or whoever that figures out some ways 
to better teach it, to better practice it, to just get better at it, they're going to have a major advantage in takedown defense because everybody's got the thing now where they dig an underhook and they drive their hips out and they spread their base and they turn their feet into uh, the the feet into the cage, you know, and they show the side hip and they're driving them down and they're pushing the head. They're doing all that stuff. They're controlling the far side elbow, whatever. The, the, everyone's got that now to varying degrees, of course, but everyone's got that now. And uh, now what you need is you got to break the hands. So that's what we're going to be looking at next. Uh, Darren Elkins, my lord, Darren Elkins defeats Michael Johnson. Ugh, two twenty-two of the second round, rear naked choke. Michael Johnson, um, he looked awesome in the first round, didn't he? Looked awesome. He was piecing up Darren Elkins, and I know that's a common trajectory, but he was on it. He looked good. He didn't look drained. He looked fast, so fast, you know. He looked, he looked like a million dollars in that first round. And, and the other thing about him that was really impressive was how fast he was able to get his hips down or his hips back away from Darren Elkins. He was really, really good about that. Um, yeah, he looked, I mean, I don't know what to say. He looked amazing. Like combos were there, speed was there, distance management was there, takedown defense, lights out. That was a, almost a 10 8 round, maybe, um, for Michael Johnson. Then he comes out in the second round. And I think he threw a kick and he got caught. And that was it. And here's what these guys are doing. He did it. And who else did it? Uh, Mike Santiago did it in the uh, early fight. This was amazing. These guys are getting really good at it now. They're getting on top in half guard. And what they're doing is they're purposely getting right on top of you, right? Far up to the point where if I want to stand and I'm underneath, I need to dig an underhook. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can do it, but I might want to step over your leg on the same side. I need to sit out, create an angle. If I want, I can I can stand out from that way. If I want, I can double off on you. I can control you as I do that. I can force you over, especially if I step over on your leg. But I got to get that underhook. Those guys will give you that underhook. They'll give you that underhook. Whoops, so you fire the underhook. Now what are they going to do? They're going to come around, and as you sit up with the other hand, so you fired an underhook on this hand. What are you going to do with this hand? You're going to stand. And as you go to stand, their weight is already on top of you, so they just come around with the guillotine threat and either they get the guillotine threat or you go back down flat and then they can work on their passing. If it doesn't work at all, you just go stay back down there. Like it's a very effective tool. He was able to do that in that second round. And once he was on there, it's, you know, uh, he had this one moment, uh, Michael Johnson, where he was able to buck and roll. He got to his base. High hips always wins in a scramble. He got to his base, and I think he felt like he was going to lose, so he kind of like stopped scrambling. Not lose the fight, but lose the scramble. And so he was just kind of covering up. But like if he had kept going, uh, maybe changed direction on him, just kept moving, he would have won. But uh, Elkins was able to get his hips higher, come around the back, and then snatch him off of his base. And then here's the crazy thing about it. Like, you don't have, I mean, these guys now are figuring out you don't necessarily have to get the rear naked choke under the throat. You can kind of get it on top. And if you know exactly where that groove is, and then you begin to bow somebody out. They, the choke naturally sinks as they naturally go out. So it's like quicksand. Before you know it, you're up to your waist, and you don't have any anything to get you out of it. Um, and that's what happened to uh, Michael Johnson. He was kind of chin-tucked a little bit. But guys before used to just make it about what's happening here with the hand fighting. Now guys are really digging hips in, pulling the using the hooks to pull the legs back, driving hips in. And guys are getting bowed out when you get – I mean, just – Try to keep your chin tucked when you're when your your shoulders are slumped. Very easy, and you can keep your chin tucked when your shoulders are back. But you can see it's it's harder, right? You can hear my voice change. You know, it, it it just naturally opens up a few more avenues. And if you keep doing it and keep doing it, it, it just it, it pulls you open. Um, 
And you're seeing a lot more from that. What a total collapse from Michael Johnson in that round. The kick was probably ill-advised, particularly from that distance. And uh, you know, once you, Elkins is on top, man, he is uh, a suffocating nightmare. This is his record recently. The guy's 33 years old. He takes an insane amount of damage, but he hasn't lost since fighting Hakran Diaz in 2014. He's beaten Robert Whiteford, Chaz Skelly, go to Fredo Pepe, the Mirsad Bektic fight. Then he beats Dennis Bermudez barely. And now Michael Johnson. I don't know where he's ranked, but it needs to be a lot higher than it probably is, I'm guessing. Very, very deserved win. Um, and incredible resilience in that first round. As for Michael Johnson, I don't really know what to say about that one because, geez, man, like, um, it wasn't that he looked bad. It, I don't know that the weight cut is the answer, but I don't think it's the problem. You know, which isn't, so I'm not saying he can't have success there, but. I don't know. It, it wasn't clear to me what that was solving exactly because once it went to the ground, he looked physically overwhelmed. Right. So if you're going to go down a weight class to, yes, to re hit the reset button in your career, maybe, but also um, that should confer some physical advantages. And I'm not sure that it really did. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. What happens down there is very much a skills issue. No doubt about it. I don't want to take that away from Darren Elkins. But, you know, you're dropping 10 pounds below. It's just hard to say why that didn't give him a lot of extra benefit when he came past, especially in those close quarters, muscly situations, you know. Very, very odd. Got some by. It's delicious. All right. Let's go through these. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this prelim card because I'm not sure that many people watch this thing. I did not see a lot of interest in tonight's card from uh, social media. Uh, James Krause defeating Alex White, 29-28. Krause... Uh, looked kind of slow out there, striking. But once he was able to get to the fence, again, um, able to use a series of, you know, combinations from underhooks, level changes, wrist control, and then really great skills on top when he got there um, to take a close fight. But the big power of Alex White was giving him problems. Polo Reyes defeating Matt Frivola, KO Punch. He just walked right through him. Guy went right into his range, and Polo Reyes just set him on fire. Um, and with multiple punch combinations, you know, this guy gets in a little bit of firefights, but Favola got right in his face, but I think got too far in his face where his punches weren't landing and all of Reyes's were, um, vicious, vicious win, sat him down, face planted him. It was solid. Irene, or Irene Aldana defeating Talita Bernardo, 30-27 across the board. I saw some people saying they thought this fight was awesome. I, I'm not saying it was the worst fight I've ever seen, but it's just a lot of, you know, when there are these like sort of like reaching leg entanglements when one person's on their knees and then the other person takes a while to get out of them. It just feels like, you know, maybe that's an over, it's an overemphasis on just one aspect of the fight. There were some better ones than that. Okay, fine. But it just felt like there were some, there were some elements of this contest that were, you know, not, not befitting of this level. Uh, and they, they happened more often than I was comfortable with. But it was a nice win for Aldana. She showed some improved takedown defense and some abilities to make adjustments on the fly in that third round. Obviously, her jab is like really good, uh, and she needed a big win. But I don't. Talita Bernardo had a, and she had a nice. She had one nice half guard sweep or deep half. You know that she was able to come up on top with that. That was cool. But I didn't see a whole lot with that one that really um, I cared about. Uh, Kyung Ho Kong, I believe that's how it's pronounced, defeating uh, Guido Canetti or Guido Canetti. At 453 of the first round, Kennedy is uh, interesting. He looked okay. He had uh, Kong rocked a few times, 
but at the end he gets he's getting he's trying to get out of mount and he does the like a super rookie mistake it's easy when you're a mount sometimes depending on what guys do because they can bait you they might have a certain balance to get one arm through right and then think that that's enough to like push through and turn but what ends up happening is if you have anybody who's got a halfway decent guard when you push through and turn you've given them the triangle which is exactly what you saw from Kong you got to go two arms in or there can be circumstances where you go one arm like on a deep half but that's when you have control of one of their legs not when you're just pushing them off and then leaving leaving your arm disconnected from your body that's a little bit different um so it's not that like the one arm thing never works it, that it has to be accompanied by other measures to keep that arm safe just a buck and roll with it with it separated is not is not good and uh, he paid for it so nice win for kong but Kennedy, who also was gone for a while here, just making some really um, suspect judgments. Just guy defeating Kalindra Faria, 29-28 split. So then he, uh, she had two of them. She um, she was able to get she, – she had really nice – just guy did some really nice commitment to the finality of the takedown, really pushing it home and getting it when she needed to. You know, having a nice high um, – uh, upright stance when she was trying to put the ear against the leg to finish the double. I was I was appreciative of that. She really hustled to get those takedowns. Um, but the, the issues for her were never necessarily she had a bad ground game. She had a pretty good ground game. The issues were, I think, moving on in the striking department. And that was the one where I did, that was where she lost this fight. If, if, if you think she lost it or, you know, it's not where she was beating Faria at all. Faria was lighting her up a lot um, because she just doesn't really move her head and she goes side to side and then comes in and she was getting timed over and over again. Um, that was the problem before that's got to get fixed for that to no longer be a problem now, but on the ground, I thought I looked, you know, or at least getting the fight to the ground. I should say I had just good wrestling. She's quick. She has quick time to level changes. Like they're explosive. Like they're pretty good. You know, it's just on the feet. That was what was giving her among other problems. But that was one of the major ones. And I don't, I, I'm not, I'm just not seeing a lot of development in that, in that, in that space. And I think that's sort of the concern that I have. JJ Aldridge putting a beat down on Daniel Taylor, um, 29, 28 across the board, looking good at the very end there, uh, marking up her face, catching her, whichever way she was going. And then Mads Burnell versus Mike Santiago. I talked about Santiago being real heavy on top, forcing Burnell to hit the underhook, you know, uh, and then him having some problems with that and he, you know, getting it. And then, and then he's trying to lock up the, the, the uh a guillotine but it didn't work in the end he loses uh unanimous decision mads burnell 29 28 on all three of them uh mads burnell by the way that was a pretty good fight to open the the show those guys had a lot of ability a lot of ability so not the greatest card i've ever seen but short in a merciful way which i'm always appreciative of if you have any questions i'll take them on twitter now l thomas news which you can get at me at l thomas news um, you can see that below in the description box. I'll take some of those questions, and then after that, I got to, you know, we'll see how this goes. Someone says stalled. Oh, it's Elvis Sinisek, the real one. Oh, the real one. She was working for the finish. Tried to get an arm triangle in the first, agreed, and sunk in a triangle in the second to get the finish. The end of the round saved Paige. Yes, yes. Not talking about the triangle. And in the first, she was working, but there were several other points where she got on top. So we're not talking about stalling generally. Let me be clear about that. And uh, by the way, shouts to the king of rock and rumble, Elvis Sinisek. Very cool that he's watching and uh, appreciate the feedback, even if you disagree. I don't mind that. Um, the issue is not that she was stalling generally. The issue is if I get to a position where you got the 
crossface and I'm in the half guard and maybe I'm messing with the wrist uh, or maybe I'm threatening something, but it's not a super deep threat after the second or third time where I think it's happened over the course of several rounds and we're just finding ourselves over there again. I think you, I think I, I would argue that you should lose the benefit of the doubt about whether some kind of positional advancement is going to be happening here, right? It's pretty clear that you're okay and content to stay there. And that's, and that's even that's okay. But if you're going to be content to stay there, those submission attempts from that space need to be a little bit more like forthcoming and quick. So in other words, if you're going to not, if you can't, you, if you want to scoop the, uh, the back of the tricep to get the head and arm. Okay. Let's see what happens with that. That doesn't work. Okay. But now you need to go to the, um, uh, cross body, um, uh, Kimura, and if that doesn't work, something else. Then maybe pass. Then push, push the hips over and try to pass, or hit three quarter mount, or, or something like that. It's just when you when you go to a position, and the first time you do well, and the second time a little bit, you, you're doing fine, but there's nothing really happening. And the third time, nothing really happening. But that third time, you got to move it along. I, that's my opinion. But I do appreciate you watching. Please tell me you watched the Vikings game prior. Yes, I know, and I'm bitter because I'm a big Saints fan. Uh, Talking about um, Duho Choi, Jason says they want to get him a name, win, and title shot. So they matched him up with guys who would slug with him. He's come up short both times. Okay, well now it's pretty clear that he needs some. He needs some work. Someone says I'm with you. He might want to go on that military leave now. Yeah, well it's scheduled. Um, how do you think Usman fares against high level wrestler like Woodley? Who's next for Usman? Any of the, I mean, I think anyone's going to have trouble with Kamara Usman. The question is, a guy like Woodley probably has enough skills to break hands or prevent hand locking um, before it becomes too bad, right? Because he's going to be diligent about that, too, in all spaces. So I'm guessing that, like, look, Kamara is going to be hard for anybody. But, again, as good as that was, I think that's going to be a little bit limited as you get to the guys at the top of the division like Tyron Woodley. And Tyron Woodley, by the way, a very decorated, athletic, quick, explosive, strong wrestler as well. And you saw like what was the big thing that he did against Demi and Maya? He never let the hands get together. That was a big, big, big. Go look at my uh, the breakdown of that fight. Look at anybody's breakdown of that fight. It's a key component. Um, and it, look what Robert Whitaker did to Jacare. Never lets the hands get together, right? Like a gable grip. Never lets them get together. Okay. Uh, Eddie Bravo just let it slip that he was waiting for knee surgery until after Tony Ferguson's fight in February. Okay, great. Uh, you can only hope that they give these guys, excuse me, young guys, a path like Max Holloway with strategic bumps along the way. Yeah, I mean, look, some guys get match made better than others. Conor McGregor got match made well. Max Holloway, um, Got match made well in the end. Uh, but Duho Choi, it's pretty clear at this point we got to take a step back. I just don't see how that's really super controversial. Um, yeah. Anyway, all right. So let me think anything else from the crowd tonight. Uh, again, the crowd in St. Louis couldn't have been worse. Bunch of goobers. Uh, never read a book in their lives. Uh, all that wooing is just really embarrassing. Let's see. Uh, I thought Paul Felder was really good again. Not... I wasn't as uh, pleased with this performance as it was from UFC Norfolk, but super, super solid. I actually thought that Brendan Fitzgerald, who I think is also really good, he had a bit of an off night. Um, nothing, nothing terrible. I wouldn't give. I would give him a solid B minus for this one. You know, I thought before he was like B plus A minus. 
Uh, just a couple of moments where there were some broadcast issues in terms of really making sure that everything was set on time. He had problems with that. So not, not a major issue, but not his best night either. Oh, I thought the UFC taking care of Matt Hughes in the way that they did was uh, pretty great. To bring him out there like that, to see him walking like that, just, you know, not even, what, not less than a year. So was it seven or nine months? Seven to nine months is how long it's been. It feels like a year, but uh, but it hasn't been. And, you know, he was, this guy was in a coma, and then he's out there walking. Uh, you know, it looked like he was probably unable to maybe, I'm sure under assistance he could walk into the cage, but it looked like he had some issues with like vertical travel. But but even to be walking out like that is frankly a miracle. And, you know, one of the major things you can say about the UFC is they haven't always been all that great about, um, you know, honoring their past. They've gotten a lot better about it recently. And... Uh, it's good that, that Matt Hughes is still being treated as somebody special, you know, because that's he is and he was. And it's good to see the UFC honor its traditions and the people that made it what it is, even to this day, even if it's a little bit foreign to fans. It, it's just a thing that needs to be done, uh, especially if you took, <laughs> took away the guy's paycheck with a WME takeover, right? All right. If you got any questions, email me, lukethomasnews at gmail.com. Uh, one last time, give the video a like, subscribe to the channel below. Appreciate you guys. We'll be back next week. I'm, I might have a, I might do a watch party next week. We'll see. I don't know. But I know with UFC 220 and Bellator, I'm going to have a lot going on on this channel next week. So um, please be on the lookout for that. Thank you guys for watching. I really appreciate it. Shouts to Elvis Innocent one more time, King of Rock and Rumble. Even if you disagreed, I always appreciate someone like that coming and watching and giving us his feedback, and he had some great wins in the Octagon uh, as well. All right, guys, I'm out of here. Until next time, Oh, stay tuned for the Monday Morning Analyst on MMA Fighting tomorrow, and until next time, get some sleep.